Alright, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is where we'll be. Good to see all of you. As we get started, uh, don't forget, uh, coming up here pretty soon on a Monday, uh, February 6th, we have our Spirit Night at Spring Creek Barbecue. Uh, Put that on your calendar uh, and make plans to enjoy a good Texas barbecue meal with us uh, and also just support the church. Uh, So good to see you guys uh, this morning. Uh, This morning's sermon is called Sine Qua Non, uh, which is Latin for without this, there is nothing. Uh, without this, there, there just nothing exists, nothing would happen, nothing would come to be. Uh, and, and you'll see why I have to get started, because I think without the event that we're going to read about this morning, there is no church, there is no community of, of worshipers sent out on mission in the world. And, and without the gift given to us, there is not you and I. I mean, there's not our lives, there's not our hearts, there's not our um, redemption and our, our life in the world. Sine qua non. Uh, we'll pick it up in Acts chapter 2. We're in one of the more controversial passages um, in Acts. Uh, so people read this passage, this story, and come to vastly different conclusions um, about the way that the world works and about the way that Christianity should work, things like that. Part of the problem is words themselves are kind of tricky. Um, and so I'm like a language nerd, right? That just really gets me jazzed, just thinking about words and things like that. Um, and just, the, I mean, the human ability to formulate words and to communicate with other people is a very complex um, skill that we have. And words can be flexible and words can be synonyms and, and different things like that can happen with words. Words can change meaning over time. Uh, so I don't know if you know this, but nice, the word nice, right? Like if I said, you look very nice today. Um, originally from like the Latin meant ignorant. Uh, it's it's kind of changed over time, right? So here's the, like if you know language really well, you insult people without them knowing, right? Because you just use your definition. So nice, uh, here's one we all are familiar with, gay, right? Gay used to mean happy, used to mean jovial. Now it, it refers to, it started in about the 1600s, referred to immorality, and then increasingly got um, lumped together with homosexuality. Uh, another one's awful, right? Awful typically meant something that inspires awe, something that was good. I mean, something that kind of overwhelmed you and impressed you. Now it's bad. Now it's just awful. Uh, and so words can be, this, can be tricky. They can, they can kind of morph meanings, things over time. And I think that's what happens a lot here in this passage. And so we're going to try to define words and then see how they're flexible and then hopefully not miss the, the forest by looking at the trees, okay? So we'll, we'll look at what's happening here in the passage uh, and, and try to work our way through it. Acts chapter 2, we'll pick it up in verse 1. Uh, read with me here. Acts 2 verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues, as of fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not these Galileans? Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And and how is it that we hear each one of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylona, all these crazy places, right? The two big P's there. Egypt, the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. 
And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, which would be about 9 a.m., But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. They shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. (coughs) So here we get um, Pentecost. We get this great moment in the early church's history. Um, You probably maybe have heard Pentecost called the birthday of the church. Um, Pentecost is kind of this dramatic beginning of Jesus' church as they're kind of formulated as a group and sent out onto mission. Without this event, there wouldn't be you and I. There would not be kind of this church presence in the world, this witness sent out on behalf of Jesus and his resurrection and his work and salvation. And without the gift of the Spirit given to these believers and given to you and I, we wouldn't be. We wouldn't be. Without this, there is nothing. Without this, there is nothing. But this one little story, this one little passage has created all kinds of different interpretations and all kinds of different ways of seeing the Christian life. Um, in fact, there are churches meeting this morning who, if you, I mean, if you went to their worship service, you would see things that would not look like worship to you, right? You would see very loud, extravagant, kind of crazy, out-of-control type things. Um, and, and they get that kind of religious experience and worship service kind of from this text, I mean, based off an interpretation from this text. And then you get, like, you and I, right? And we're, for the most part, from the opposite end of the pendulum. We're more subdued, right? I mean, it's an Easter miracle if I get an amen during a sermon, right? We're just all real comfortable. We'll sit there. We'll stand and sing. And no one will get crazy, right? No one's going to get out of control. Um, And then in the middle, again, of all these different interpretations, of all these different experiences, you have Pentecost, You have the Holy Spirit coming down. This is the promise that Jesus had given his disciples. Remember in chapter 1, verse 4 and 5? He said, John baptized you with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now notice this. This is the first thing I want you to notice in verse 4 of chapter 2. Luke says this. They were then filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So filling... Being filled up with the Holy Spirit and being baptized with the Holy Spirit seem to be synonyms to Luke. Seems to be the same thing. In fact, the scriptures a few times mention being baptized in the Holy Spirit, but it's not common language. It's not all that common in the scriptures. More common is receiving the Spirit or being filled with the Spirit. And again, notice, right, these words, these phrases seem to be flexible to Luke. So some would build um, interpretations and build um, theories and ideas off of a distinction between being baptized in the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit. For our purposes, look here. I mean, they seem to be synonyms. This is the baptism of the Spirit. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. We mentioned a couple weeks ago who the Holy Spirit is. He's a person of the Trinity. 
Okay, we, we often think of the Holy Spirit as like the force, right? Like this apersonal, just kind of power seeping through creation, and you kind of draw on his ability, like Luke Skywalker, right? And you just use the force, young one, right? Um, but the, the Spirit, according to the Scriptures, is a, is a person. He's personal. He has thoughts. He can be grieved. He has ideas and plans. He moves and does these type of things. And, and it, Christians would say he's the second, or the third person, excuse me, of the Trinity. You have the Father, you have the Son, and then you have the Spirit that moves in us. We saw the Spirit seems to be kind of the mediator of God's presence and power. Uh, and so to be filled with the Spirit, um, to, to lay out a kind of a working definition here, might mean to, to have a fresh experience of God's presence and power. The, the word spirit in both Hebrew and Greek, ruah in Hebrew and, and panuma in Greek, um, they, they both also are synonyms for the word wind or breath. It's kind of the wind, it's kind of the breath of God himself pulsing through creation and now pulsing inside of believers. And when it shows up, it's like this cold air that, that blows a breeze through the windows and the doors of the soul and the heart and the mind. And you have this fresh experience of God's power and his presence. In fact, the words used here in Acts 2 to describe this, right? There's a sound like wind. There's, there's tongues that look like fire. Those are common expressions in the scriptures to talk about God's presence. Or what we call a theophany, when God shows up, when God reveals himself. Commonly, you, you would imagine as wind. You would imagine as fire. This is God becoming present, but now present inside the believers, inside Jesus' people. The Spirit indwells with them. They're full with the Spirit. Now, this, this word Pentecost, so they're all at, at Pentecost. And there's Jews, we're told, um, from all over the world. And they've come to Pentecost because Pentecost was one of the three major pilgrimage festivals of the Jewish people. So, so you've got these flexible words like baptized with the Spirit and filled with the Spirit. And then you've got this Pentecost word, which is another very flexible word. You and I know Pentecost probably, since we're Christians, as, again, kind of the starting point of the church. But it actually had a long history before the Spirit fell down on Jesus' disciples. Pentecost originally, as far back as we can look, was an agricultural festival. It was called the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Harvest. Um, and it was one of, again, the three main pilgrimage festivals. So the Jews had three festivals that, if they could, they would travel to Jerusalem to participate in. And it would kind of be this big homecoming of the entire nation, this big celebration all in one place. And, and one of these festivals was the Feast of Weeks, or, or Pentecost in the Greek. Um, and, and what they would do is they would celebrate the first fruits of the crops, they would celebrate the first fruits of the crops. It was an agricultural harvest. And for an agricultural society, the first fruits are, are very important. I mean, it tells you what kind of crop you're going to get, right? It tells you what the next season of your life is going to look like. Will it be one of abundance? Will it be one um, without much? And so they would get the first fruits, they'd taste them, they'd see what they were like, and then they would go and celebrate. They'd go feast, they'd go have a good time. Now, over time, Pentecost also became... Um, a festival to celebrate the giving of the law or the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. The reason for this is because Pentecost happened 50 days, right? Pena, 50 days after the Passover. And if you'll remember back to, e, uh, to Egypt and to the, the book of Exodus, um, the Passover, you had the Passover lamb, this great act of deliverance from Egypt. And after God freed his people, after he redeemed his people, 50 days later they ended up at a mountain called Mount Sinai. And there, 
God gave them the law. They called it the Torah. And it was, was God's way of, of telling them what life should look like in his covenant. Now that they were his people, now that they were his bride, now that he had saved them, this was what he was giving them to live life with. His instruction, his Torah. It was the boundary marker for them. It was how they knew who was in the covenant and who wasn't. Those who followed and obeyed and found their life in the Torah. And, and the law for us has this negative context, this, this negative connotation. Uh, but remember, for the Jewish people, it was, it was one of the best things that God ever did for them. I mean, it was their path into the promised land. It was his deliverance for them. They wrote these long love songs about the Torah. You have one in your Bible, Psalm 119, this long extended love song that God, in his grace, gave them a covenant with the Torah, with the law. And so the, the Jews in, in first century, right, they're all here on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, and they're celebrating these things. They're celebrating the first fruits. They're celebrating God's gift of the future to them. And they're also celebrating that when, when God led his people out of slavery, he gave them the law. He gave them something to define and to live in the covenant by. And both of these meanings, both of these shades, um, I think serve as excellent backgrounds to see what's happening here on Pentecost, the Christian Pentecost, on the falling of the Spirit. So in one sense, as the Spirit comes, I think what you see is it's a, it's a taste or a down payment of eternity. Just as um, during the agricultural festival, you'd get the first fruits of the crop. It would be a taste of what's to come. It would be a sign of what's to come. It would be a pointer towards what was ahead for you. So God's spirit blows through creation and, and finds a resting place in the hearts of his believers. And it's this taste, it's this foreshadowing of eternity. Flip to Romans chapter 8 with me. Romans chapter 8. I'll warn you, we'll do a little bit of flipping here at the beginning. Eventually we'll settle down in Acts, okay? Um, but, but bear with us for just a minute here. Romans chapter 8. This, this imagery of the spirit being a first fruit is very common in the scriptures. We'll look at one instance here in Romans chapter 8. We'll pick it up in verse 18. Romans 8, verse 18. Paul says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What a beautiful verse. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So he says, with sin, with death, with the, with the fall of man in Genesis 3, all of creation, not just humans, but all of creation have had this weight put on them. They've been subjected to corruption and decay. Death has unleashed its reign upon everything that God created and said it was very good. And creation itself is groaning, is waiting for the sons of God, for God's people to be revealed and have that weight lifted off, not only the sons of God, but also creation itself. You have this kind of cosmic picture here of all of creation waiting for the new heavens and the new earth, for God's redemption to be finally complete. But watch what happens in verse 22, or verse 23. Not only creation, but we ourselves... Who have the first fruits of the Spirit? We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for 
Who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so the Spirit comes to the believers here at Pentecost and also into you and into my life. And it's this taste of what's to come. It's this down payment. It's this advance of what eternity will be when God's presence, when his power fills the earth, remakes all things, when death is kicked out, when the glory of the Lord fills the earth as water fills the sea. And so they, they taste the future. They taste what is to come as God's breath fills them. But then also, I think another important comparison here is the giving of the law. And so they're at Mount Sinai. Again, they have this covenant given to them. You are now my people. Here's the way to the promised land. And Moses goes up on a mountain. And down comes the law. Down comes the Torah. Don't miss the comparison here that Luke is telling us about. Jesus goes up into heaven. He ascends into heaven. And what comes down is not the law but the Spirit. And the Spirit, now we might say, is the, the characteristic of God's new covenant people. Whereas the Torah defined the first covenant, defined the first group of redeemed ones from Egypt. Now those who are redeemed from sin and death itself, those who have found salvation in Jesus, they're now given the Spirit. That's what their covenant looks like. That's the boundary marker of their covenant. Who is in the covenant? Well, those who have been given the Spirit. And, and what we know is that this was a promise from the Old Testament, that this new covenant would involve the Spirit, and that what the Spirit would do is put the law on our hearts. I mean, it would remake us from the inside out. It would give us a power that we had never had before. It would allow us access to God's presence that we had never known before. So flip with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. To the left a little bit. We'll go head into the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31. A very famous New Covenant passage. Jeremiah chapter 31, we'll pick it up in verse 31. Jeremiah says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So this is new covenant will not be like the first or, or the old covenant, as how Hebrews would refer to it. The Sinai covenant, the Mosaic covenant, where Moses gives them the Torah. Jeremiah says the problem with that covenant, if you want to use terms like that, is, is frankly you and I. I mean, we could not keep that covenant. He was faithful like a husband. But it was our hearts. It was, it was our end of the bargain. We could not keep it. So God, in a sense, is going to fix it. God, in a sense, is going to take a step above that in this new covenant, in these days when the promises are fulfilled. So look what he's going to do. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. No longer will they have it on stone tablets. It will be written into the very fabric of their thinking and their breathing and their living and their moving. 
And then, because of that, the covenant, the purpose of the covenant is fulfilled. He says this, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is the heart of the covenant. We are bound together. I will be yours, and you will be mine. No longer, he says, verse 34, shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. They shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I'll forgive their inequity. I'll remember their sin no more. One more. Go to Ezekiel chapter 36. Just to your right, a couple books. Ezekiel chapter 36, another kind of new covenant promise. So the Torah, its role in the covenant is going to be replaced by an inward Torah, by a very reworking and remaking of the human being itself from the inside out. And look at how Ezekiel describes the same action, the same promise. Ezekiel 36, we'll pick it up in verse 26. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. He says this, I'll I'll give you a new heart. I'll I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. I'll put my spirit within you. And I'll cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Notice how the problem is fixed here, right? Um, the, the new covenant will be kept because you and I don't, don't really have as much of a role to play. In a sense, he causes us to obey. He says, I'm going to remake you. My spirit will be that which pulses inside of you and moves you and directs you. And so you will obey. You'll be careful to follow me. You'll dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And you shall be my people. And I will be your God. And so Luke says on the day of Pentecost, as the Jewish people celebrated the giving of the law, they found, as Jesus' promise to them was fulfilled, the new covenant inaugurated, the Spirit of God Himself dwelling inside of them now, coming down to fill them up. And so if we head back to Acts, Acts chapter 2, we have them in, um, at the day of Pentecost, they're in the upper room. There's the sound that comes. They see these divided tongues as a fire appear on them. And then they're filled with the Spirit. They receive the baptism of the Spirit. This beginning of the, the early church. And notice what happens. Let's all get a little uncomfortable, right? They're filled with the Spirit and they began to speak in tongues. They began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, now lots of questions here. With, with the Spirit, with baptism by the Spirit, being filled by the Spirit, with, with speaking in tongues. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll hit on some of these as we continue to go through the book of Acts. We'll touch on a few um, just now. Um, you, you may or may not have had experiences um, where some of this confusion kind of came in. Um, you might not know this about me, um, but I happen to be uh, filled with the Spirit. Um, have been more than once, actually, right? You never knew. You never know talking to someone, right? But there you go. You know someone. Um, I have not ever spoken in tongues. Um, I at once was uh, working at a bookstore, and, and a young lady was working with me, and she uh, was from a kind of a Pentecostal charismatic background, um, which would be the very heavy emphasis on tongues and, and being baptized with the Spirit. And upon finding out that I had never um, spoken in tongues, um, then assumed, because she had equated these two, her tradition does, um, that I had never been baptized with the Spirit, um, and that... Uh, and so I was, I was kind of, I wasn't mocking her, right? But I, I was still very young, and so I was kind of going back and forth with her. And I was like, well, the, I mean, am I a believer? Like, what is, what's happening? Like, 
am I missing out? And then she kind of spelled out for me that I was kind of like a, a lower class believer, right? There's kind of these two tiers of Christianity, and it's fine, right, to be at this first level, but, but you really should be looking for this, this jump up, right, this level up. You need the shot in the arm. You need to start speaking in tongues. There are actually books written, right? How to speak in tongues. Seems counterproductive. Um, seems like tongues should be like a supernatural type thing if, it, if it's there. Um, but, but like syllables, right, to just kind of get started with. Um, I think a, a joke of when I was leading a high school group uh, a couple years ago was they should make a Rosetta Stone for tongues, right? <laughs> Rosetta Stone can teach you any language. I'm sure they can teach you the spiritual language. Um, so there's all these, there's all these um, kind of confusing and conflicting ideas about what it means to be baptized, what it means to be filled. Um, so let's just look at a couple questions. Again, we don't want to get bogged down in the trees and miss the forest. Um, but one big question is, is being baptized with the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, what happened to these people here? Is that the same as what happens when someone's converted? Is that the same thing that happens when someone believes, when someone starts to follow Jesus? Or is it a subsequent experience? Is it step two of some process? Is it something you should, should try to seek and find after you begin to believe? Here's where traditions and opinions start to separate, okay? Um, I would say this. Um, I think um, it's clear in scripture, at least to me, that, that being filled with the Spirit happens at one's conversion. They are synonymous. I think the scriptures um, equate the two, right? Um, to believe in Jesus is to be filled with the Spirit, is to have received the Spirit. I don't think one can happen without the other um, throughout the scriptures. This is the classic Protestant answer, okay? This will be your classic evangelical answer. That no, they're not separate events. It's the same thing. It's the same. It's, it's all kind of in one big package that you sign on to and you receive. Um, I would, though, clarify from Scripture, I would say the answer would be no and yes. And this is where, where people start to get nervous, right? I do think there are things that happen with the Holy Spirit that happen after conversion. We would say it like this. Um, believers can and should have subsequent fillings. Um, that you're not filled up to the brink and, and then you're done. Um, and so there's these two kind of opposites, right? There's this, there's this side that says, when you believe, you're filled with the Spirit, and that's it, and you kind of coast for the rest of your life. And then there's the side that says, when you believe, that has nothing to do really with the Spirit. You need to be looking for that kind of like spiritual booster shot in the arm, right? To get the Spirit. And then I think there's a mediating position. I think the clearest in Scripture that says, no, the Spirit's involved in believing, but the Spirit's also involved in other kind of dramatic experiences of God's presence later on in your life. This is why Paul in Ephesians says what to his Christian community? Be not drunk with wine, but with scotch. No, he, he says, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. He says, be looking to be filled. Seek to put yourself in a position to be filled. Ask to be filled with the Spirit, even though you're already believers. Even though in Ephesians 1, he says they already have the Holy Spirit as a down payment, as an inheritance, as mark, a seal, a promise on their lives. We see this in the book of Acts itself. If you flip to Acts chapter 4, we'll see this kind of filling of the Spirit happen um, to people who already have been filled by the Spirit. In Acts chapter 4, verse 8, Peter, then Peter, 
filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. Um, the, the Greek here um, is more of a present tense, so it's Peter being filled. It's Peter now filled again with the Holy Spirit. If that's not clear enough for you, right, in the English, you don't trust my Greek, um, flip to uh, chapter 4, verse 31. You should be on the same page. Verse 31, the disciples are together. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I think the Spirit continually comes and fills. I think the Spirit dramatically shows up in new ways, in fresh situations. You see in the book of Acts, we'll see this as we go through it, the Spirit typically comes and, and fills people right before something big is about to happen. Right before there's about to be this new experience and fresh creative explosion of the gospel onto creation. And so the Spirit's almost like a marker for us as we read the book of Acts. Like a, our ears should perk up when the Holy Spirit shows up. Because something's about to happen. And so I think in the believer's life, as you believe, there's this sense of you're filled with the Spirit. I think we can all relate to that. When we started believing, right, God felt so close to us. His power was kind of pulsing in us and we were witnessing to the people around us. We were praising Him. We were really committed to following after Him. But I think as as Christians, we should continually seek to be filled with the Spirit. I think it's something that can come again and again, particularly as we prepare to do something, to be sent out to accomplish something that God has called us to do. We're filled again. We meet once again the, the cold air, the breath, the wind of the Spirit blowing through our soul, blowing through our minds. So I think believers can and should have the subsequent fillings. Um, and then here's the question, right, in the book of Acts, um, particularly in Acts chapter 2. Is being baptized with the Spirit synonymous with speaking in tongues? Is that a requirement? Is that the evidence? Do you know if you've been baptized because you've spoken in tongues? You know my answer, right? I've never spoken in tongues, and, and I believe I've been baptized. So, so the answer I would say is, is no, um, but we'd be careful here because sometimes it is accompanied by speaking in tongues. But not always. Sometimes, but not always. I do not think there's a good scriptural reason to believe that the gift of speaking in tongues has stopped. I've heard people try to defend that, right? And it just sounds kind of silly to me. I don't think there's scriptural evidence behind that. In fact, I know um, people, um, a good number of people who, who have spoken in tongues. And, and I have no reason to think that they're deceiving themselves and me. Um, I think that that gift is still alive and still well, as are all the gifts of the Spirit. Um, but it is not synonymous. It's not synonymous with being baptized. There are all kinds of different gifts, um, and, and so you don't have to speak in tongues to be baptized. Again, I'm, I'm guessing from our background, including my own, right, this is kind of foreign to us. I would guess that most of us have probably never spoken in tongues. Um, most of us have, have probably maybe never heard someone do that or, or been around someone who's done that or, or heard someone claim to do that and believed them, right? Um, but this is it's kind of... It is kind of characteristic when the Spirit comes. These, these kind of weird, supernatural things happen. And so you have the arrival. You have Pentecost. The Spirit of God comes down and dwells in the believers. And then notice what happens. They start speaking in tongues. And they start witnessing to the people around them. So you have all these different nations in Acts 2 uh, represented in Jerusalem as the Jews have come to celebrate this festival. Uh, and they're, they're witnessing. Notice that the tongues here are not non-human languages. It's not just like blabbering in syllables, right? They're actually speaking in other people's languages, just that they themselves have never learned and did not know. Um, Now, Paul in Corinthians seems to think that speaking in tongues is kind of an angelic language. 
that you would need a miracle of interpretation. Here, there's no miracle of interpretation, right? The people listening are hearing their language. The believers have been gifted to speak, though, in other languages that they have not learned. And all these different nations are hearing the word of God proclaimed to them. Now, this again, I think Luke is is echoing another famous, very big scriptural passage for us. In Genesis 12, verse 1 through 3, you have the call of Abraham. God comes to Abraham and says, Through you, through your family, through Israel, I'm going to bless all the families and nations of the earth. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. This is kind of the start of God's plan of salvation. Through Israel, I'm picking a people, and through you, somehow I'm going to bless everybody. But if you go back and read Genesis 12, that promise comes right on the heels of Genesis 11, where you see something happen in Babel, which is actually Babylon. It's the only place in our scriptures, actually, it's not translated Babylon. It's kind of interesting. Um, But when the Jews were in exile in Babylon, the irony wasn't lost on them, right? Um, Right before they were called, um, yeah, there's been curse laid down in Babylon where they found themselves because of their sin. Um, But the Tower of Babel, human beings come together in kind of the sense of arrogance and pride, and they come to, in a sense, manipulate and control God and his actions in the world, and God curses them, and he scatters them and confuses them. And the big sign of this is that you have a whole bunch of different people who can't communicate to each other. Who can't communicate to each other. And Genesis 11 is seen as kind of the climax of sin and death working themselves out into creation. So in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve fall. In Genesis 4, you have the first murder with Cain and Abel. By Genesis 6, everyone is so wicked that God decides to restart the program as a whole. In Genesis 11, human beings have their own big ideas about how the world should work. And God curses and scatters them and confuses them. And then he says, Abraham... These people who are scattered and confused through you will fix this. Through you will undo this. Through you will bless them. And then here at Pentecost, I think you see the Spirit signaling the fulfillment is here of God's promises to Abraham. You have here almost, I think, in a sense, the overturning of the Tower of Babel. So we're in the Tower of Babel. The families are scattered and confused and cannot speak to each other. Now you have the word of the Lord, the work and accomplishment of Jesus being spoken to all the languages. And they all understand. And they're all receiving the blessing of what Jesus has done on their behalf. In a sense, you see kind of a sign that the curse of sin and death is being overturned. Babel is being reversed. And God's promises are not only on track, but have been advanced to a key point in the story, or right on the edge of completion. So notice, though, for our purposes, what happens when the Spirit fills up a believer? What happens when He fills up both the believers at Pentecost and you and I? What happens when He comes into our hearts and dwells within us? Well, a couple things. Look in verse 12. Or verse 11, they're, they're all kind of amazed and perplexed, and, and they're saying that we're hearing them tell in our own tongues the mighty works of God. I think when the Spirit comes, He enables the church's mission and witness. He brings us to the nations. He brings us to our co-workers, to our families, to our schools. He enables us to, to be and to join God on His mission, to be the witnesses that Jesus talked about in Acts chapter 1. 
And they do that in part because they're praising Him, because they're proclaiming the truth, because their eyes and hearts have been fully opened up to what God has done in and through Jesus. And notice the reaction of the people hearing it. Most were amazed. Most were perplexed. And they they said to each other, what does this mean? What's happening here? We can't fit this this turn of events, right? You have the disciples filled with the Holy Spirit. They go out. They move from the upper room into the streets, speaking the word of God in languages they don't know. And they can't fit that on their mental map, right? There's nowhere to put that in their filing cabinet. They can't make sense of it. It doesn't have a place in the story that they tell themselves. And so others, they mocked and they said they're filled with new wine. And then you get kind of Peter's explanation, right? Peter's the the leader of the early church. He stands up in verse 14 and he lifts up his voice and he addresses all the people. He says, men of Judea, all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose since it's only the third hour of the day, about nine o'clock in the morning. Now, a couple things here. First, the Jewish people were known for enjoying their wine, particularly these festivals, right? Um, so this is why Peter's like, look, the kind of the tradition was to fast until around noon. Peter's like, no, we're not on the wine yet, right? I mean, we're, we're good Jews. I mean, we're, we're fasting right before the celebration. But notice this. The first Christian apology or defense of the faith. I mean, the first ever that we see where Christians have to explain themselves to people who have questions is this. We're not drunk. <laughs> no, we're not drunk. We haven't, we haven't started that yet. We're not, we're not drunk yet. I mean, you and I, when we give defenses of faith, when we do apologetics or apologies, we typically squabble and argue endlessly about tiny little words and ideas, right? And, and, and Peter, the, the first Christian defense is, I know you can't make sense of this, but we're not drunk. That's not the best way to explain it. The early Christians were always being accused of these kind of extravagant celebrations that they thought people misinterpreted. Um, for instance, the early Christians used to do communion together as this full kind of night-long meal. And they used to go into a room um, by themselves. You weren't allowed in unless you were in the community. Uh, and they would have these long feasts. And they'd drink lots of wine, the body and the blood of Jesus. And they'd sing loud songs. And you could kind of hear what was happening from the outside. And it was kind of this real exclusive um, thing that was surrounded with confusion. And did you know that they called this the agape feast? The Christians used to have these agape feasts. Well, the rumor around town in Rome was that the Christians during these agape feasts were having these kind of drunken orgies. I mean, that's what most people commonly assumed was happening when the Christians went in to, to I mean, excuse my, my crudeness there, but that's what most people assumed. We have records of people talking about this. And the Christians used to have come out and say, no, 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 that's not what's happening. I, I know you hear singing and laughing and having this great time in there, but we're just worshiping. And we're still kind of under control, except for maybe in Corinth, right? Paul has to, remember, he has to tell the people in Corinth, Stop getting wasted during communion. I mean, that's not what this is there for. Slow down on the wine a little bit. But the Christians were known for these extravagant wonders and signs and this joy. So much so that the, the, the first defense is we're not drunk. And I think it's a sad indictment on the fact that now today we, we argue about ideas. No one looks at us and goes, why are you so passionate and joyful? And typically, I mean, we argue with ourselves, Right? I mean, we've become and a bit irrelevant to the world around us. We're not interesting to the world around us. I think that's one of the problems, with, one of the reasons the church is kind of shrinking and decline. We're not interesting enough to make people notice us, to make people ask us questions. What we really do is spend time arguing with each other. 
So Peter gets up and goes, okay, let me explain some stuff. We're not drunk. It might be 5 o'clock somewhere, but it's 9 o'clock here. And we have not started drinking yet, okay? So here's how he gives the explanation for what's happened. He, he, he says, you, you can't fit this on your mental map, right? On your mental narrative. But it's been in your scriptures all along. And so he goes to Joel and he says, look, it was prophesied that this was going to happen. So he reads from Joel chapter 2. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Notice just males know it's inclusive. Men and women will prophesy and will preach and will minister and will be given roles in the church. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams, young and old, male and female. Your male servants, your female servants, even them in those days, I'll pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. Gender, age, socioeconomic status, all of these things are demolished when the spirit comes and forms the new covenant, the new covenant people. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come, verse 21, to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter says, this is in your your prophets. This was in Joel. This was in your scriptures. This, he says, is that. He says, you can't fit what's happening in the streets right now on your mental map. Let me explain it to you. This is that. What you're seeing happen in front of you are these promises being fulfilled. In particular, he says, it's the last days. In the last days, he says, God declares he'll pour out his spirit. Peter says, the work of the spirit, the presence of the spirit. It's a sign of the last days. It's a sign of, of kind of this end of time movement. It's a sign that we're near, that we're close to all the great promises of God being fulfilled. We've talked about this before. The early Christians as a whole, very consistently, considered themselves to be living in the last times. And that wasn't a mistake. They weren't just categorically wrong. And in fact, I think if they would have been aware, they maybe could have met us 2,000 years later. They wouldn't have denied that belief. We are living in the last days. You, you realize that resurrection itself, the act of someone bodily raising from the dead, is a last times event. The Jewish people thought resurrection was going to happen to everybody on the last day. Daniel 12, some would be raised to glory, some would be raised to shame. Now, Jesus does kind of um, put a kind of a new twist into the plan, right? Because he's raised on his own in advance the first fruits of you and I on the very last day. But when people rise from the ground, Jewish people go, we're in this time period. The last days have started. And Joel says, in those last days, I'm going to pour out my spirit. There's going to be this powerful move and dwelling within my people as I make a new covenant. Before the final day of judgment, the great day of the Lord. And so what it is, he's saying, this is that. It's a flashing sign. It's a billboard for all to see that salvation has begun. That God's promises are being fulfilled, that all that you wanted and, 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 and pursued and heard and dreamt about is available to you. The last days have begun and, and we're close, closer now than ever to the day of the Lord. Notice when Joel has this phrase, day of the Lord, what he means by Lord in the Hebrew would be Yahweh, the name, the one true name, the one personal name of Israel's God. Now, when the early Christians used this phrase, and, and when Luke appears to, to use it here, or Peter through Luke, 
they're referring to, to Jesus. You see this, this is a move that Christians make all the time in the New Testament. Paul does this constantly. He'll quote a passage about Yahweh, the Lord. And what he means by Lord is Jesus. This is the first step toward how you and I would think that Jesus is divine, that he should be worshipped as the one true God. And, and Peter says this, with this sign, with this last day starting, it's a challenge, it's a warning, but it's an invitation that all who call upon the name of the Lord, all who believe in Jesus, can enjoy that life that's now being offered. It is now and will be enjoyed by all who believe in Jesus. And with this, the church begins. We'll pick up next week. Peter continues to preach his sermon. 3,000 people are saved. And dominoes start to fall that will not stop falling. That are still falling to this day. You and I are small dominoes, right? In this big domino effect of the Spirit moving and working and pulsing throughout creation. And just as the disciples, when they receive this taste of eternity, so you and I, when we're filled with the Spirit, when we're overwhelmed with this sense and experience of His power and His presence, we're given this taste, this foreshadowing of what life will be like. And just as the Torah, the giving of it, was the sign of the covenant, was what characterized God's people. So now, being filled with the Spirit, being transformed from the inside out, having our very thinking and living changed through His presence. Now that's the characteristic of the new covenant people, of you and I. This is the covenant. This is how God is our God and we are His people. So let's wrap up this morning and I'll I'll leave you with two things. The first is this. Because of, I think, our background and because of of the way that that we run and and we naturally assume certain things, um, I would tend to want to push us toward the more charismatic, spiritual aspect of Christianity, right? I think we're more rational, stoic, um, calm human beings. So I would suggest this. The early Christians weren't drunk, right? I mean, that was a false accusation because we're not drunk. We haven't started drinking. But don't, don't miss what happened there. They were accused of being drunk. Here's a question I would have for you and, and for us as a church. Would anyone ever accuse us of being drunk? I mean, not that we were drunk, right? But would anyone accuse us? Is there anything in your life that would make someone go, this doesn't fit on my map? This doesn't fit on my map. What could cause someone to be so passionate? What could cause someone to be so sold out on mission? What could cause somebody to be so committed to the God of the universe? Is there anything in our worship services? I mean, you see this, right? I mean, they were accused of being drunk. Is there, have you ever been accused of something like that? Have you ever so not met up with what people expect from other human beings that they've had no, no way of explaining who you are and what you've done? I mean, they, they definitely weren't drunk, but, but they were accused of it. Because when the Spirit comes, there's this power There's this extravagant worship that's unleashed. And people shouldn't have an explanation for it. And then the second thing I'll I'll leave with is this, that that Jesus tells us in Luke 11, after giving us the Lord's Prayer, we saw this in the the Messy Kingdom series, He tells us that that you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. If your child asks for an egg, you're not going to give them a scorpion. And He ends it by saying this, 
If you then who are good know how to give good gifts, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him, to those who beg for Him, to those who come before Him and say, fill me up. Give me this fresh new experience of your power and your grace and your mercy and your truth. And so I leave this morning asking you to ask Him, asking us to ask Him. Fill us up. Like Paul says in Ephesians, let us consistently, constantly be being filled. Let's position ourselves in places where the Spirit washes over us, fills us up from the inside out, and pulses through us. That we would be sent on mission. That we would be filled with His praise. That we would find ourselves transformed from the inside out. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank You for... Your scriptures, and I thank you for the work that you have done in Jesus and are continuing to do um, through the Spirit and dwelling within us. Um, Father, I pray that you would fill us up. I just want to take a second this morning, Father, and and give us all the chance just between us and you to ask for this, Father. So we'll 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 spend a second in silence and, and just ask you to fill us. Father, we need you. We we want you. You're all that we need. Father, in a life that's decaying and corrupting, in relationships that are decaying and corrupting, in a world that's decaying and corrupting, we want this taste of the future. We want your presence inside of us. We want you pulsing and moving in us. We ask you to fill us. We ask you to fill our church. We ask you to fill our community. We ask you to fill our city and our state and our country and our world, Father. We ask you to create something inside of us that would, would leave people complexed and amazed. And Father, we, we thank you as we come to participate in communion. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for the Passover lamb slain for our freedom and for our salvation, for our rescue. We worship you And we give you the honor and the praise. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.